Welcome to the next in our online conversation series. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's Cathedral, which means that I look after the theology and learning that take place within the life of the cathedral. This time I'm talking to Dr Selina Stone, who is a postdoctoral research associate in theological education at Durham University and also the host of Sunday School for Misfits, a podcast that reflects on faith, church and theology. This time, I'm talking to Selina about her most recent book, which is the Archbishop of Canterbury's 2024 Lent book, called Tarry a While, Wisdom from Black Spiritualities for People of Faith. And in our conversation, as always, we range widely, thinking about the importance of tarrying, spending time with God, we're also thinking about how Selina's own faith journey has shaped who she is as a person and who she is as a Christian. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as Selina and I enjoy talking to each other. Selina, it's great to have you with us today. Um, we're talking today about your Lent book that you've called Tarry a While. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that word tarry? Because for a lot of people, um, it's not a word that they would use every day. Yes, it's quite an old school word, actually. Um, as Pentecostals, we tend to like old school things. And it's a word that I always often heard growing up when we talked about having prayer meetings or particular services where we gather together and really create a sacred space and sacred time where we would occupy the space together as a congregation and do our best to not set the agenda ourselves, but to just gather together and give space to God. And so we would call it tarrying, thinking about that verse where Jesus says to his disciples in Gethsemane, could you not tarry with me one hour? And so the tarrying practice is, is us saying, yes, we will. And often for more than an hour, but it's a really beautiful moment of, um, of, of time to wait with God, of time to experience God together as a community. And do you always tarry with other people or do you, can you do it on your own? Now, I think there are definitely kinds of this that can be done alone. I think that we often talk about having a tarrying service together or tarrying together as a, as a group, because often that might be about interceding together for particular needs. It might be in Pentecostal settings, praying for the gift of tongues, which often involves us praying for, for and with one another. But I often look back and think about many moments in my own life where I've actually spent time alone in what has felt like a tarrying posture and I think it's very possible that we might have space on our own in what we might often call our daily devotionals for example of our morning prayers where we incorporate elements of tarrying into that time and in this way tarrying I think connects with many different kinds of practices I think contemplative prayer is a kind of tarrying I think that even something like teze singing often like I think back to times where we've sung, gathered together and repeated a simple song or a simple phrase um, over in song together as a group. And it, when I first went to Tez, I remember thinking this feels familiar to me, although it's from a totally different space. So I think that there's ways that these traditions actually are very interconnected. And if someone wanted to um, tarry in Lent, because um, your, yours is a Lent book, um, are there any top tips that you would give them? What have you learned over the years about um, what makes good tarrying time? So I think that on, on your own, I think tarrying really is learning the or practising the ability of, 
of setting your own agenda aside in the time of prayer, which is very difficult. I think it's what silent prayer is helping us to do. It's to enter into the space of prayer, of wanting to spend time in God's presence intentionally outside of the busyness of the day. Um, and it's about practicing the ability of stilling the mind, of, of, of bringing to our worries to God the things that might give us anxiety, the things that we might be carrying with us. And learning how to hold them before God openly, and, and but not to grasp onto them, to be able to hold them so lightly that they might even drift off in the peace that we find as we sit with God. And we know that we will leave prayer and have to go back into the world where many of these challenges will, will accompany us. But I think the time of prayer allows us to, to hold them a bit, le- a bit more lightly. And I think together, the tabbing moment, the, the tips for the tabbing moment, I think, in a, in a collective sense, is, is really about discernment. I think so many of the times in my own experience, my time of, of being together with the community of, of faith has been enhanced because of the gifts of the people around me. And so in that moment, it's not just a moment where I'm expecting to meet with God. It's a moment where I'm expecting that I may actually receive something that is a gift for somebody else. I may actually have a passage of scripture come to mind that I may feel I'd like to share with the community. And this might be exactly what my brother across the room has been praying to God about. It might be a passage that a sister who's come in, who's really at the end of her tether, might be encouraged by. And so one of the the most important things is to realise that these moments are not just for our individual spiritual growth, but they're an opportunity for us to assist in the support of the whole community. So are you good at tarrying? Is it something you do naturally? It's it, Ironically, it's not something that I've done in quite a while. And it's partly because it's been a while since I've been a kind of card-carrying member of a Pentecostal church, particularly a Black Pentecostal church, but this is quite common. So I've had experience of this when I visited recently. Um, but it's something I really long for. And it's funny, writing the book, it reminded me of what I'm missing. <laughs> and so it's on my list of things to do during Lent, actually. And what I want to be able to do is to help to create some spaces where we might get to do this together. Um, but I think it's something that I really love doing. And I, I I think when I look back to my younger years, it was a regular part of my life was to be in a, in a prayer space and to be experiencing God with me as I read the scripture as I pray with my with the congregation and to also be in that posture of listening for what I might share as well from my own discernment in that space it's a it's a really beautiful experience and and for some people it's 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 a challenging space because actually it can take time you know these prayer meetings that I'm talking about growing up we'd have them for hours like a 6 p.m till midnight service prayer meeting sometimes all the way through a 12-hour prayer meeting from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And that involved moments of stillness and quiet, as well as singing and even laughter and prayer and mini spontaneous sermons that anybody would be led to bring to the congregation. It could go on for hours. And so some somebody sent me a message to say, my memories of having a lot more fun than their memories, <laughs> which I could understand. <laughs> um, but I, but I think there's something very beautiful about this tradition that comes out of some of our Black churches. 
Yeah, it sounds fabulous. And you've mentioned already um, the Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, can you not tarry a while with me? I always feel a bit sorry for the disciples um, at that point. It's like, you know, I often have the temptation to have a little nap um, um, yeah. while, while waiting in the presence of God. So I've always kind of felt a little fellow feeling for the disciples. <laughs> <laughs> but um in the Bible, are there other stories of tarrying? And have you got one that you think is particularly important? Um, I think there are quite a few. The one that I that immediately comes to mind is the story of Jacob. And he is about to meet his brother Esau again. And they've had a huge falling out. And they're going to cross over this river. And Jacob sends his family ahead. And he is waiting overnight alone. And while he's there waiting to move into this new space, he's met by, he has a vision and he's met by this this being. And this is the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel and having this, this limp when he's finished. And this story, I think, is really powerful because it's something, again, I've heard preached so many times and it, it, it communicates something about the wrestle that many of us go through in, our, in the life of faith. When, we're going, when we find ourselves in a difficult moment and we are unsure of what the future holds and we're maybe disappointed and we're maybe under stress and we're in a place where we didn't expect to be. And it, it tells us that God is with us in those moments, first of all. But then this moment of wrestling that happens and him saying, I'm not going to let you go until I'm blessed, is this, this, this real incredible example, I think, of the agency of the human person in relationship with God and our capacity to be quite stubborn and to persist and to keep on going. And and tarrying doesn't have to be a a passive thing. It's not a kind of sitting back and whatever will be, will be. There is a kind of agency involved in this and saying, I want to bring this to God and I'm going to wrestle with God about this. And I may not get exactly what I want or expected. I'm sure Jacob didn't expect to have a limp at the end. But he was marked forever by the encounter and his name was changed and he enters into this new space with his with his family. And I think there's so much there's so much richness in that story, I think, about the moment of anticipation, the moment before we enter into the new thing and and how there can often be wrestling and struggle even with God before we enter into those times. Yeah, it's a really powerful story, isn't it? It's um because tar- the word tarrying kind of does communicate kind of a little bit of peace and quiet, yeah. and it's all contemplative, and you're having a nice chill time, um, and kind of to bring in that whole wrestling with God. I think it's so powerful, as uh, and that that you're never the same again once yeah. once you've done it. It's a, it's a kind of really beautiful image. Um, one of the things I was really interested in in the book is that you talk about black spirituality, but every time you you do, you put black in inter, in inverted commas. Um, can you tell us why you do that? So I, I mean, I'm not thinking. Did I do that all the way through the book? Maybe you didn't do it all the way Maybe through. Not. I just noticed it. I, from, no, it I'm, was the first yeah, time. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to. So in the introduction, I put it in inverted commas because I want to define exactly what I mean and then once I've defined it I just say black without the inverted commas but this is a word that I think can mean a lot of different things to different people and even as I was writing the book I was aware that I'm only really talking about my particular perspective on this there are some black people who will say I don't connect with this probably and others who will think 
some of this resonates with me, but not all of it. And, and that is the beauty of culture, that we all sit in it and we feel it from a different perspective and we understand it from a different perspective. And But I wanted to have an opportunity to celebrate what I think are some of the gifts that come to us, to the church globally, from African and African-descended people, and to really deep dive into some of those traditions and those riches, because I think sometimes they can be overlooked or seen as not serious enough for consideration. So I wanted to take the chance to say, actually, there's some good stuff here that we really should think about some more. And um, on that subject, uh, you mentioned also um, the great black theologian, Anthony Reddy. Um, Shall we just pause for a moment and go, first (laughs) professor of black theology in the UK. Yay. Um, He is a fabulous theologian. And um, he calls Jesus a black hero. And you mentioned this in the book. Um, Why is it so important to you? I mean, it's, it's such an interesting thing that he does. I think I love what Anthony does in in his own work in thinking about Jesus and the importance of Jesus in black theology and for black communities. And this is because within black theology, the body of Jesus is very important. Um, And I don't just mean that because the body of Jesus is sacrificed and people are healed when they touch the body of Jesus, but because Jesus is born into the body of a man from a minoritized group who experiences what it is to be unjustly treated by systems of religion, by political systems. And so in talking about Jesus as a black hero, um, Anthony is reminding us that Jesus is somebody who black communities identify with, because so often we know what it is to be minoritized. We know what it is to be, to have to speak up for ourselves. We know what it is to be brought before unjust systems and structures and made to answer for ourselves. And we know what it is to be plotted against too often. Um, individually or as whole groups and so for Jesus to be somebody who has shared in those experiences in his day and time means that he's a kind of hero for us in particular and of course a hero for many people (laughs) from many different groups but I think sharing in that in that that political experience um, has really great significance it means that the resurrection has particular significance for us for us as part of communities who so often don't get to experience fullness of life on this side of eternity. The resurrection reminds us that actually in the life of Jesus, we see an an overcoming of evil powers. We see an overcoming of injustice and systems that oppress. And Jesus's life after his death reminds us that God will have the final say over all of these things in the end. And what difference does that make to you as a Christian? Because I mean, it sounds like that's kind of, that's where the real fire comes for you in your faith. Um, what difference does that make in in the way in which you express your faith, in the way in which you live your life? And um, what does that mean? <coughs> I think it's. I think that anybody wants to know that God sees them, and I'm reminded a lot of Hagar whenever I say anything about God seeing us, because of that beautiful way in which Hagar, when in, when she's in the midst of her distress, says God is the one who sees, because God finds her in the desert with her child. And I think that when we talk about Jesus in these ways, it means that communities who've been used to seeing God or being taught to see God as somebody who is distant and far away, who's not really concerned with what we're we're dealing with, who's not interested in our plight, that instead we begin to see God as somebody who's very close to us. And, and this, of course, is what we see throughout the text in all kinds of ways. We hear these beautiful poetry, even in Philippians 4, about 
Jesus who, you know, didn't, didn't think equality was with God was something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant and, and lived among us. And this is the beauty of the Christian story. But so often when we tell it, it sounds like Jesus is really hanging out with the powerful and the privileged. And so often when we talk about Jesus, it sounds like Jesus is like everybody else. He values the same kinds of people, supports the same kinds of norms. And instead, what we find is that Jesus is very willing to be identified among those who are really treated with a bit of suspicion and they're not really welcomed in, they're not really embraced. And I just think it's the most revolutionary thing ever to imagine God in this way. Um, As somebody who is not kind of rubber stamping the order of our social life and the disorder of our politics and our economic systems, who's not endorsing all of that, he's not saying well done to those who exploit and make lots of money off the backs of others. I think it's amazing to think of God in this way as resisting that. And so for me, the person of Jesus continues to be the most beautiful and compelling part of the Christian story. And why for me, with all of my wrestling, um, I really can't let it go. Yeah, and I mean, like, like you, I love that Hagar story. It's just so beautiful, and that kind of there's that really kind of gorgeous play on words of um, good God Elroy, the yeah. God of seeing. So it's the God you can see, and the God who sees you, yeah. and um, how they all kind of it's and that kind of sense. And you're right, it's like in a way, it's almost kind of the early incarnational stuff, isn't it? About yeah. J- Jesus is 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 made flesh, and we can see him, and he. And he becomes flesh, so he we know that he sees us, yeah. and that kind of Hagar story kind of is yeah. resident of that. I think is so, so really beautiful. Um, you, one of the bits I really liked about in your writing was how when you started talking about the importance of bodies um, in African spiritualities, um, and something that I'm very passionate about about kind of the importance of the body in spirituality. Can you tell us why bodies are so important in African spirituality and what that does to our understanding of faith? I think it's like I think bodies are so important within African spiritualities. Um, it, it's almost so organic. And most of the time, if you asked people, they wouldn't even think to say this or to even recognise this as a thing because it's so organic. Um, African perspectives on spirituality are so holistic, it would never occur to us to try to divorce the body from the spirit or the soul or to uphold the spirit above the body in that way. But to see them as so deeply inter- interconnected so deeply dependent on one another and for the, for not only the body to be dependent um on the on the on god but actually on connection to community on on the earth on in on so many other things there's such a holistic understanding of human flourishing that involves so many different aspects and so i think for me like thinking about the body as as core to spirituality as core to worship as core to prayer is it really opens up to really exciting things around, first of all, what we mean when we talk about worship and what can be included in that. It means that people who maybe can't speak or struggle to use words or whose instinct in the self-expression isn't about words then have so many more options available to them when we begin to broaden out our understanding of our humanity beyond just what we can say and we begin to open up expression beyond what we put into words. And so I think it really is quite important, I think, for us to really challenge some of the dualisms 
that have caused us to imagine that our spirituality depends upon us suppressing the body or trying to leave it on the outside. I think that our emotions are so much a part of spiritual practice. I grew up watching people weep and laugh in church services in the space of five minutes because they're overwhelmed with the sense of God's presence, that they're so humble, that they 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 kind of physically respond to what they're experiencing. And for me, it's just it's it's incredible. It's what I expect to happen when we're experiencing um the source of life. It's it's to me very understandable why that would happen for people. And so I think it's really a really beautiful thing for us to move past these kind of dualistic perspectives on the body. And and I do think that this is happening in all kinds of ways where people are engaging more with practices like yoga like whatever we feel about yoga this is a way that many people are tapping in to a spiritual practice that is about the body being involved and understanding how our wellness our well-being is connected not only with our with 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 what our mind is doing or what our emotions are but also how our body is and so I think there's there's a lot more understanding about this now I think and I think it's really good that we that we understand how these things are connected. And uh, in your own faith and practice, um, what difference does it make that you take your body really seriously? Are there things that you do that are different um, or is it just the way you think about things? I think I probably these days, it does make quite a difference because I I really was battling a lot earlier on, probably about a year ago, talking with, us, with my spiritual director about how I was struggling to just sit on a chair with my Bible and have prayer time in the morning. And I was feeling really guilty about this because that's how I've always been raised to have my morning prayers is to kind of sat alone with my Bible and maybe my journal. And instead I was saying like, I go for an afternoon walk every day and I find that to be a really good way to talk to God. But I feel like this is not really proper <laughs> proper devotion. Um, and she quickly dissuaded me from this way of thinking. And I started to find that walking was a really wonderful way of me connecting in with the body more as I am engaging in a spiritual practice. And I'm not sure why it does, but it helps me so much. I would say for me, yoga is something that I practice. And I have found so many times as I've lay on my yoga mat that I will spontaneously be praying. I'll find myself having a little cry sometimes because I've released some emotion that I didn't know I had pent up in my body or some stress that I had that's now released. And out of that will come a prayer or a memory of somebody that I want to pray for. So I think there's all kinds of ways I've been surprised by how paying attention to the body as part of spiritual practice can really open up things in a really interesting way. Yeah, no, I'm with you all the way. I had exactly a similar conversation with my spiritual director going, I'm just so bad at praying because <laughs> sitting in a room on my own, kind of it just doesn't work for me. And I just sit and think about all the things I'm not meant to be thinking yes. about instead of praying. Whereas if I'm doing something, I need if I do something with my hands or if I'm walking or um, then I start praying. Yeah. And so um, my spiritual director suggested to me to notice when I pray naturally and yeah. then to do more of that yeah. rather than telling myself I have to sit in a room quietly yeah. and not speaking to anyone. It's, uh, I'm really interested to know it's the same for you. One of the things you talk about in the book that I thought was really interesting is the um, thing about disappointment and um, the importance of disappointment in your spiritual life and how you kind of come to terms with it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and why that's important for you? Yeah, I mean, this was a really um, 
difficult bit of the book to write actually I I was really struggling with what to put in that final chapter and then I it occurred to me as I was on a walk ironically thinking about the final chapter and I I thought actually I think I need to write about disappointment and it was partly because I guess with all books you're writing out of what you know and what you're dealing with right for me it's it's living with disappointment and reflecting for me on how much disappointment had been building up in my journey and I hadn't really been processing it properly and how that contributed part in part to my huge faith crisis particularly when my mum died and my faith crumbled into a million pieces and so for me talking about disappointment is important because I find that for me it's been a kind of undetected element of my journey that I hadn't paid a lot of attention to and in part it's because I think we're encouraged not to so you know, if you pray and something doesn't happen or you're, you're let down in some way by somebody, you're kind of almost made to think, oh, it's not that big a deal. Just get over it because, you know, God's done lots of other good things. So just don't really worry about it too much. Or, you know, you kind of are not really encouraged to really sit with what that now means for the kind of God you believe in or what you believe God does or doesn't do. And it, it, it opens up a lot of big questions. And, as a theologian, I've had space to think some of this through myself. And I wanted to have the chance to just to say to people that I, I see this and it's real. And what you're feeling is not illegitimate. It's not invalid because this is what many of us have had to deal with. And some of the disappointments are so deeply hurtful that it can really send us off on a totally different track. And I and I and I haven't suffered anywhere near what I know some people have suffered and the levels of disappointment that have shattered people's whole lives. And so I, I thought that it's impossible really to write a book for Lent and to not speak honestly about what we actually encounter in our faith lives. And I know that it might not feel like a positive chapter, um, but I'm not into false positivity at all. I think our faith has to be honest. And part of what I think is a struggle for people who are not part of the Christian faith is that we're often just not honest about the fact that some things are just horrible and they happen and we can't stop it and and we're in we're in it with everybody else trying to figure out what to do when life takes a turn that we didn't expect we don't get to escape from some of the most painful and tragic experiences that human beings have to experience or not that they have to but that human beings experience and so for me, it was so important to give honour to that and to to hold to hold space for people who are really just carrying so much pain and trauma and disappointment. Some of that being what's happened to them by the hands of other people. Some of that being the disappointment we feel in the church. There's so much of that around at the moment. I feel this sense of disappointment that the church isn't what people hope it can be or should be. That that it just should be on in kind of by by any measure of things, and and there's so much of that in the atmosphere I feel, and so it felt important for me to name that as we as we're going through that chapter on weeping and thinking about the things that cause us pain in this life and how we can respond to them. It's really interesting, isn't it? That because in a sense, you know, from thinking about Paul writing about Jesus, um, that's right at the heart of everything that he says. You know, the, 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 we, we proclaim Christ crucified, you know, it's a disappointment's not quite the word for it, is it? But um, it's kind of the most disappointing outcome of, um, um, of a life in a way um, yeah. is that, you know, Jesus, it ended on the cross. 
exactly. but it's not obviously disappointing because it's brought um but why is it that we're so bad as christians about talking about it because it does feel doesn't it as though if you ask people to talk about the things that disappoint them or upset them or they feel have let them down they rush really quickly into talking about kind of how god has blessed them or the yeah. hope of resurrection or all the good stuff so why do we why do we struggle with it so much do you think I think part of it might be that like culturally we think that in our particular um some of it I think can be cultural so I think the kind of keep calm and carry on mentality that we we tend to have in the UK is part of it is that we want to be seen to be just getting on with things and not dwelling on the past and not dwelling on what's difficult and we take a particular kind of pride in suppressing pain and trauma and just pretending everything's fine because we imagine that that's what's going to make us acceptable to other people we might even think that will make us acceptable to God. And I think some of it is theological in that some of us are in traditions whereby everything's supposed to be amazing all the time. And, you know, somebody asks you how you are and you say, I'm blessed and highly favoured and you'll be having the worst time ever, but you're going to give somebody a good report because you think that's what you should do as a good Christian. And it just puts so much pressure on the mind to live in this dichotomy between the reality of the pain of what you're going through or what you've suffered and the need to pretend everything's fine. Um, and so I think that it's it's really about recognizing also that God can handle that honesty. I think some of it can be a worry that God will be disappointed in us if we're honest about our own disappointments. We can feel that God is wanting us to be, to put on a brave face, that God wants us to be, that being faithful to God means always pretending we're happy with how things are and that we're grateful and have no complaints. Um, and this is despite the Psalms, of course, are full of complaints. <laughs> They're full of people saying, I cannot believe you've let this happen. And um, and God is fine, it seems, <laughs> with that. And so I think there really is space for us to be much more honest in our spiritual practice than some of us think, than some of us think we can be. And that honesty is also about telling God, I didn't expect this was going to happen or I expected this would happen and I'm hurt and I'm disappointed. And and to let that sit and to sit with that honesty in the space with God. And in my experience of doing that, I have found God to be so full of kindness and mercy and grace. Never anger or disappointment or frustration with me ever. And reading through the text to, to see the God we're talking about helps us to come to that point of realizing actually the Jesus we meet in the Gospels, it seems to be forever patient. <laughs> and forever full of kindness, even when meeting somebody who we might think deserves to be told off. And this is, I think, to me, such a comforting thing to think of God in this way when I'm wanting to come in prayer with feelings of disappointment and and sadness. I was thinking about this um, earlier um, because um, we are terrible, um, as we've said, about um, talking about our disappointments, except for on social media. <laughs> When on social media, it turns out Christians are really good at it. Um, and I'm just wondering how you get the balance, because it's almost as though we do it not enough in the right places and we do it entirely in the wrong places. Um, have you got any thoughts on that? It's so true, isn't it? And and it is, it is. there is a time, I think, when there is definitely a time, I think, for sharing disappointments beyond just 
the prayer time. Like that, that I think needs to be said that there are kinds of disappointment which are not just disappointment. These are issues that need to be talked about and dealt with properly in collectively as well at times or in an organization. So, you know, I talk about the disappointment that we feel or that we've collectively felt every time there's been a new story of a church leader who turns out to be a predator or an abuser. And that is not the kind of thing that I'm saying we just take to God in prayer and leave it there. Um, our prayer time can be a time where we're actually, when our inner life is able to find some healing and some rest from what we've dealt with. It might be a time where we actually are able to remember who we are in God's eyes, a beloved child of God in whom God delights. And those things are very important. But there's responsibility that we also have, you know, when when we hear about these issues or we experience them, those kinds of disappointments, some of them are about legality and about abuse and they need to be dealt with beyond just your own prayer time. Um, but I think that when it comes to social media, um, it takes so much discipline to make a decision about when you're not going to speak and when it's actually just un unnecessary and unhelpful to voice disappointments. And I, I think that sometimes it is necessary. So I think that when we're talking about minoritized, small groups of people, minoritized groups um, who are really up against it in any way, shape or form, it's important that we use what we can to elevate those voices. And it's important that when we're feeling disappointed as people who have any privilege in the situation, that we use what we have to um to hold up our sisters and brothers when we have the opportunity but i also think there's a moment when the disappointment that we're feeling is actually can't produce anything good probably in on social media and so it's about discerning what is the right thing to do with my words at this time and how do i respond in a way that's actually going to be constructive that's not just a map about me letting off steam or trying to embarrass or shame someone but what, what are these, how are these words actually helping to move us forward to something better than what we have now? And I think if we can pause and ask ourselves those questions, like what is the real motivation and even the primary motivation of what I'm about to tweet or post on Facebook or whatever else, we might actually do better. And I have to do that all the time. I've deleted about a million tweets because I realized this was just about me letting off steam or wanting to send an indirect tweet about a situation. If I really want to make a difference, I can write an email to somebody who has power to do something, or I might actually organize something that might mean we might actually be able to make a change in real terms. Because change making on Twitter to me is very questionable. I'm not sure how much actually does change. It really feels a lot of the time like we're just burning, like we're just um, letting off steam. Yeah, and that's that's the really crucial thing, isn't it? Is the difference between letting off steam and um, voicing lament. It kind of, you want to put them as the two because um, yeah. that's the because I love the way in which you kind of looped in the psalms of lament um, in the Old Testament and how actually the psalms of lament and they're not letting off steam. Well, sometimes they are, aren't they? Mm. Sometimes they are really just having a proper moan. Um, <laughs> we read the psalms um, all the way through. Um, um, in morning prayer on a regular basis and mm. I kind of sometimes I think all right now you're just moaning um but <laughs> a lot of the time it, there is something kind of really profound about bringing the reality of the world to God 
Definitely. And, and, and there's yeah. a way that they do it that, uh, that allows other people to also share. Because um, we're reading those Psalms centuries later and we're finding connection with what's being said because the more things change, the more things stay the same. And yeah. they speak to us now. They give us permission now to speak the truth about our experience. And so I think that that kind of positive kind of, and that positive is not the right way, that kind of, um, it's a holy response, lament is, to injustice and to evil and to the things that cause us distress. And that is very important that we do that um, and discern when we're actually doing that and to do that well, but to not stray into just creating strife and stirring up anger that is not actually helping people to process in a helpful way what they may also be dealing with and to know how to act as a response. I really like that idea of the kind of the holy response of their kind of bringing it and and there's something about redemption in that as well isn't there which is feels quite important. So We've been talking about your book, which is a fabulous Lent book. Um, tell me about Lent and you. Um, what do you do? You, is is some Lent something that you observe on a regular basis? What do you do during Lent? I recently got into Lent in the last few years, and I feel like I'm more prepared this Lent than any other Lent, partly because of the Lent book, because I feel like Lent catches me off guard most years. Like it seems to come by quite quickly after Christmas. And all of a sudden it's Lent and you're thinking, what am I going to read? But I always get a Lent book and I try to build in a, a little retreat or some spiritual practices each, each year. So a few years ago, I went on a, I did a retreat day just right at the start of Lent and then another one just before Holy Week began. Um, another year I did a Holy Week retreat, which was absolutely wonderful. And or I'll buy a book and I'll read some of it every day. I'll, I journal quite a lot anyway, so that I'll make sure I do that um, throughout the period of Lent. And I may decide that I'm going to do some fasting during Lent. I might decide in one or two days a week I'm going to fast each week each week during Lent. Um, and I and I try to do something that keeps me focused on the season that I'm in because I don't want it to pass me by and I haven't had taken advantage of the moment. And it really feels to me like an opportunity for a kind of spiritual spring clean and um, to kind of open all the cupboards and have a look around and see what's going on in there and to see what I need to throw out or what I need to kind of um, take another look at and how I need to look after myself, look after my neighbours, think about my actions and how my behaviour is affecting the world. Think about how aligned I am with my vocation, with what I'm doing with my time with what I'm doing with my money. These are all things that for me come to the surface during Lent. So I really love it. I think it's a really good time. And I didn't grow up with Lent at all, actually, but it's something that I'm finding indispensable now. It's my kind of yearly checkup, if I can put it that way. <laughs> Selena, thank you so much. Thank you for the book, which um, I know lots of people will enjoy reading. Um, and thank you for talking to us today. Thank you so much, Paula.